pray with me. As we come to this text of texts, we're amazed that these words have been given to us to assure us that's, that reconciliation with you is possible. Complete, full reconciliation is possible because of your Son, because of who He is, and because of what He has done. Oh Lord, may you give us ears to hear and be encouraged and be drawn to Christ, the only Savior of men. We ask this in His name and for His sake. Amen. So Jesus has said that all of Scripture speaks of Him. But you will be hard-pressed to find a passage more significant about Him than this one that we're in. Colossians 1, verses 15 down to verse 23. So we haven't really looked a great deal at the context of why Paul was writing and what he was writing about. But the, the situation in Colossae was that heretical teaching threatened the church because it denied the humanity and the deity of Christ. It called for the worship of angels. It said salvation was only possible by a, a secret mystical knowledge beyond the gospel of Christ. And in response, Paul wrote the letter of Colossians to directly confront their heresy. And he rejects their denial of Christ's humanity and deity. He declares that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, in the flesh. He is, verse 15, the image of the invisible God. He says in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, In Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He manifests the entirety of God because He possesses all the attributes and the perfections of God. All that is in God, His fullness. Paul says in... in in chapter 1, verse 19, he says, is in the man, Jesus Christ. So much so that, that Jesus could say to Thomas, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because they share the one divine essence. He says he created all things. And that includes the angels. See, Paul declares the supremacy of Christ over all creation, calling Him the firstborn of all creation in verse 15. And then he goes on to explain why he would call Him the firstborn of all creation in verse 16. He says, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. In Ephesians, Paul says that, that Christ sits at the Father's right hand in heaven. He says, far above all rule and authority and power 
and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in, but in the age to come. Paul's not trying to call out the angels here as if they were somehow exalting themselves. Far be it from them. He's calling out these heretics who in, the, in chapter 2 it says they were delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. See, Paul is wanting them to see the utter folly of being caught up in lesser things. Angels are, are glorious creations of God, but they are nothing compared to Christ who is God and who made them. How could there be any, any secret knowledge required for salvation when in Christ, he says in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, Colossians is an incredible letter. For in it, Paul proclaims the glorious supremacy of Christ over all things. And understanding the glorious supremacy of Christ is the key to every Christian's growth in Christ. You simply won't live for Christ. You won't live for Him as you should if you don't see Him as He is. And the first way that Paul presents Christ as supreme is as God. You need to see that Christ is supreme over all things because He is God. Because He's God, we have in Him, in His taking on of full humanity, a full disclosure of God to man. Paul says He's the image of the invisible God. He is the Word of God and the only eternally begotten God who shares the same divine essence as God and therefore is God and He was with God in the beginning. He became flesh and is the only one who has explained God such that Jesus could say to Philip's request to see the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, when Thomas saw the risen Jesus, his reply, right? Remember, remember, we got the whole doubting Thomas from this guy. If I don't see him, it didn't happen. It's where Missouri came from, the, the, the show me state. And so Jesus comes back a second time and appears to them after the resurrection. Thomas, come here. Touch my hands. Touch my side. And his reply to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus' reply, look at it here in John 29, chapter 20, verse 29. John chapter 20, verse 29. So, Jesus, so Thomas has just said, my Lord and my God, I've seen you. I've touched you. I knew you were dead, my Lord and my God. But listen to Jesus' reply. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
Believed what? Believed that he is both Lord and God. See, Jesus is looking at Thomas, but he's not just looking at him. He's looking out over the landscape of time. He's speaking to all those whose physical eyes would not behold him, whose hands would not touch him. And he's saying to them, essentially, the vast majority of people will never see me. They will never see me with eyes as you did, Thomas. Yet I declare all those blessed who will believe this very same truth, that I am Lord and I am God, because they have believed what Scripture testifies about me. See, if you're waiting to see the risen Jesus in order to believe, pack your bags, you're headed for hell. Because He's not going to appear just to you. Just so you can touch Him. Not when He has given you the more sure word right here. Written, inscripturated, so that all people of all generations, of all time, can open it up and see right here who He says He is. And you're either going to believe it or you're not. But he says, those who do believe, blessed are they. They didn't need to see me. They could read right here in my word. And this puts John's words in his gospel into a different light, right? John in his gospel, right? He says, just look, just a few verses later. Look at what he says his goal is, right? It's right at the end of this. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. And then he says this in verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing that you may have life in his name. See, through John, the Holy Spirit, who is also God, inspired John to fulfill what Jesus said to Thomas. The Gospel of John is one way by which what Jesus said has been fulfilled. And he makes it clear. He writes it right after this. That's why I wrote this Gospel. So that you could read and you could see without seeing Him that He's Lord and He is God. And so this helps us to understand what God does when He saves someone. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Truth who guides us into all truth. He is the one who shines into your heart. He says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Does God share His glory with anyone? No. I should see every head shaking here. No. He shares His glory with no one. The only way that God's own glory can be seen in the face of another, in the face of Christ, is because He is God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And if you don't see Christ as fully God, fully equal with God, as eternal as God, then you do not have life in His name. You are not saved because there is no way you can be saved. And that means that you are still in your sins. There is no knowing God apart from knowing God who became man, Jesus Christ. 
You also need to see that Christ is supreme because he's the creator of all things. We're actually walking through, this is a, back to Colossians, we're walking through what we've covered. It was just so good. I just started, I tried to summarize in a paragraph and it became the whole sermon. It was so good to just put it all together, to lay it out before us, his supremacy and therefore his sufficiency to save. If there's any sermon that I should be a little bit excited about, it's when we're talking about the supremacy of Christ. Paul calls him here the firstborn of all creation. Verse 15. Now, this isn't, this isn't accurate translation, but it, the problem is, well, we want to say a problem. The problem on our end is it does leave room for people to point to this verse and say, hey, Jesus is a created being. It says right there, he's the first one created. No, it doesn't say that. I think when I say this is an accurate translation, that's correct. But I think there's a better translation. Instead of saying he's the firstborn of all creation, it should say the firstborn over all creation. Either way, though. Of, over, they're both legitimate. Either way, we can understand what Paul is saying here. When he says he's the firstborn of all creation, firstborn over all creation, is he saying anything about him being a created being here? Absolutely not. Notice, Paul does not say Christ is the first created. He says he is the firstborn. And the word here, significant word, he uses it a couple times here. Prototokos in the Greek. It signifies priority. In the culture of the ancient Near East, the firstborn was often the oldest child, but not always. And this term firstborn, prototokos, it can be used to speak a birth order. But see, in that culture, the culture in which The scriptures were written, so it's the culture by which we understand what they mean. Not just the words first and born together as if it's only speaking of birth order. What did it mean to those it was written to? I'll tell you what it meant. It spoke of rank. Not birth order. It spoke of rank. And in many cases, both were true, right? The child who was first born was also the first born. But as I said, that was not always the case. David was the youngest of Jesse's sons. Psalm 89, though, written about David. Here's what he says about David in verse 27. God speaking, I shall make him, David, I shall make him my firstborn. The highest of the kings of the earth. So God is obviously speaking of preeminence in rank. David was preeminent among the kings of Israel, but he was not the first child born in his family. He was the last one. The one who was considered the firstborn was considered the preeminent son, the highest in rank. He possessed the inheritance and the leadership of the family. Now in Colossians... Paul is not saying Christ was God's first creation. He is using the cultural idea of firstborn, prototokos, 
to speak of Christ's sovereignty over all creation. Right? That's why we say the firstborn over all creation might settle some of these people who want to say, oh, see, it says he's first created. It does not say that. And the context doesn't let you say that. Context is king when you're interpreting, especially when you're going after a word. When it can mean several different things, what guides you as to what it means? The context in which it's used. And context makes this absolutely clear. Paul says in the very next statement that Jesus himself is not created. How? Look at verse 16. By him all things were created. The idea is that he is preeminent over all creation. Yeah, but maybe God created Jesus first. And then through Jesus, he created everything else. Context shows that's not possible. At least if you want to abide by the rules of English and grammar and things like that, you can think whatever you want. But if you're going to allow yourself to be confined by what Scripture reveals, there's no way you can say that. Again, I must defer to our good brother John, the Apostle. He links Christ's deity with his being the Creator. Turn back to John chapter 1. Follow with me as I read from the beginning of John, the first three verses. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. And that's the idea of in any beginning. Pick a beginning, any beginning. The beginning of beginnings. The Word already was. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And just in case you want to have some wiggle room, let me say it this way. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Can that include Jesus Christ? Not if you're going to abide by logic. Not if you're going to abide by what John has said. If you want to skate around that and point to other verses and say, well, that just doesn't seem like God. Here it is. If something came into being, it came into being through him. Period. If Jesus came into being, uh, there's no sense of this verse. He couldn't be any clearer. So Christ could not have come into being because everything that came into being came into being through him. He never came into being. He's not the first creation of God, but he is the firstborn over all creation. He holds the place of highest rank and honor, being that all created things that came into being were made by him, through him, and for him. Nothing exists that is not subjected to his authority, and all men of every age will bow before him. Jump back to Colossians 1. You also need to see Christ's supremacy over the church. 
By the way, I think I said this. That the context of firstborn is answered. Yeah, I think I said this. That He says it right after firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created. Right? Okay, I said that. Don't want to miss that. Paul's going right there. John supported it. There's no wiggle room here, friends. There's no wiggle room. There's just obstinance. There's just lack of discernment. If you want to say that Christ is not God. You also need to see Christ's supremacy over the church. Paul says that Christ is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. Meaning the church finds both its origin and its destiny in Christ. Right now he is actively reigning and he's actively ruling over the church. And the only way that the church can fulfill her purpose is by continually growing in her understanding of Christ and submitting to his headship over her. You also need to see that Christ you also need to see Christ's supremacy over the dead. Now, I look back and I realize when I was preaching through this this is actually where I should have started. But I had already like completed three quarters of my sermon on the certain topic. So I'm just going to cover in brief what I would have had a, maybe a whole sermon about. He says he's supreme over the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead. And so here's that word again, prototokos. Everything that we said earlier about that word applies here too. Preeminent son, heir, highest in rank. So Paul is saying... That when it comes to those who will die, Christ is firstborn. He's highest in rank. He's the prototokos. And through Jesus' victory over sin and death, God, He's bringing about, picture this, He's bringing about a new era with Christ as preeminent. Because His death put death to death. And now as a result... Not only will all souls of all those who die in Christ gain heaven, right? It's not just that. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. But see, after his return, you know what comes next? New bodies. New bodies. See, our souls go to be with God in heaven, but our physical bodies, which go into the ground in one form or another... We have to wait a little while. But those physical bodies will be raised to new life, just as Jesus was. And he's the firstborn of both the dead and the resurrection. And the body that you have will never be subject to sin and death and decay ever again. That's this new era that we have coming with Christ as our head. He's Why? It's because he's firstborn over the dead. John uses the same phrase to refer to Christ in Revelations 1, verse 5. He says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So John is saying that Jesus is the ideal king, the ideal David, whose death and resurrection have resulted in his eternal kingship. And as a result of the resurrection from the dead, Christ is the first to rise, and He is the first in supremacy. By His resurrection, He has inaugurated the new creation that transcends all that is wrong with the world, sin and death, the rebellious nature of men and of spirits. 
and he sits right now as the rightful head of a new family over whom death has no power. He's sovereign over everything and therefore he is the firstborn. He's the rightful heir to everything. And when we return now to our text in Colossians, that is exactly where Paul goes. Look at verse 18. says he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So your life, Christian, your life needs to be centered around this glorious, supreme person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's God. He's the uncreated creator of all things. He's supreme over the church. And over the dead. But Paul has more things to say about this glorious glorious Christ. In fact, the reason why he pointed out his unrivaled supremacy as God and creator and head of the church in verses, right? This is what we covered is 15 basically through 19. But there's a reason why. He's telling us what he's telling us about the supremacy of Christ over all these things in verses 15 to 19. Look at what he started to talk about in verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of all sins. Oh, let me tell you about this, this glorious beloved son to whose kingdom he's We've been transferred. He's, he's gloriously supreme over all things. And then he returns in verse 20 to his thought. And he says, and it's through him, this gloriously supreme one. It's through him that God will reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. And and although you were formerly alienated and hostile, hostile in mind, you were engaged in evil deeds. Oh, yet he's now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. So he could present you holy and blameless before God. The only reason that Christ can remove all your sins, friend, is because... He is God and only because He is God. Through His substitutionary atoning death, He can completely, thoroughly, fully, and forever pardon you. That's, this, that's why Paul tells us how supreme He is. How glorious He is. Because He applies it to your salvation. And so from this first chapter of Colossians, we've been looking at this This gloriously supreme one. We've looked at the the title of this series is The Glorious Supremacy of Christ Over All Things. And why do we need to know this? Because it's the key to the Christian's growth in Christ. Are you not where you should be in your walk with God? Maybe it's because you don't see Christ as He is. How have you diminished Christ? Have you said He's not God? Have you acted like He's not God? That His commands are suggestions? That's going to stunt your growth severely. But it's from these verses today in verses 20 through 22 that I have the joy of telling you about the sufficiency of Christ. 
in reconciling sinners to God. The sufficiency of Christ in reconciling sinners to God. Because of Christ's supremacy over all things, He's wonderfully, beautifully, and thoroughly sufficient to reconcile you to God. And in so doing, I'm giving you another reason to center your life around Christ. What causes you to center your life around Christ is seeing His complete sufficiency in reconciling you to God. His complete sufficiency in reconciling you to God. Now, reconciliation in the New Testament, it speaks of a, of a change in relationship. It could be any relationship, right? We could be talking about two people being reconciled to each other, a husband and a wife, friends. But we could also be talking about God and man being reconciled. In fact, Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death... For, I said uh, for... While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. So reconciliation explains what Christ accomplished for us through His substitutionary death. He took the place of others in order to be inflicted with the punishment and the penalty they deserved so that they could be pardoned. In theology, this is called the doctrine of penal substitution. Penal Substitution. Penal means related to punishment for offenses. We call prisons penal institutions because it's where people who've done wrong are being punished. They're being confined. And then substitution means the act of a person taking the place of another. And so we're talking about what Christ did for us at the cross. On the cross, Christ was being punished in our place so that we could be completely reconciled to God. And when I say completely reconciled to God, I'm only emphasizing what Paul is emphasizing right here in this text. Now, I've already mentioned the Greek word prototokos, which is probably one Greek word more than I usually say in a sermon. I'm going to give you another Greek word. And the only reason I'm bringing this stuff out is not so that you feel like, gosh, if I don't know Greek, I can't unlock the mysteries of the Bible. That's not it. It's because there are some great little details there that are worth in showing we understand the enhancement that's behind the English word that we have. The English is, you're, you're good. But sometimes there are some details worth bringing out. And in this case, I mentioned Romans 5.10. So it says, For if while we were his enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Paul there uses the word were the verb here, were reconciled, is the Greek verb katalasso. So, katalasso is were reconciled. But in our verse in Colossians, where he says, and through him to reconcile all things, you'd think, well, same thing, right? Actually, no, it's close. Little bit of difference. Paul, remember, remember the context here of him writing to the Colossians. There's heresy in Colossae. There are heretical teachers there trying to draw the church into believing that Jesus is not God. He's not a human. You should worship angels. You should delight in self-abasement. You should deny yourself asceticism. All these messed up things. And these heretical teachers 
are threatening the church. And so Paul doesn't just go with katalaso. Instead, he adds a preposition to the word. Apa katalaso. And that, that preposition acts like an intensifier to the meaning. And so we, we could say it this way. This is Nick's translation. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to thoroughly, completely, totally, fully reconcile all things to himself, you included, Colossians. You included. See, your sinful past is not a hindrance in the slightest to the Savior who is glorious in his supremacy over all things and wonderfully sufficient to reconcile sinners to God. You hear me? Do you hear me? Did you come in here this morning without God, without hope, thinking that your sins are too great to be forgiven? In another way, I could ask the same question. Is there anything so terrible, so repulsive to God that He will never forgive it, no matter how much you ask Him? Well, let this verse assure you that the answer from Scripture is a resounding no. No sinner is beyond hope. No sin, no separation from God is beyond Christ's ability to forgive and bring you to Him, to reconcile you to Him, to change your relationship with God from hostile enemy, rebel, to beloved, cherished. The Apostle Peter preached these sweet words to the very ones who disowned Christ, their Messiah, and demanded His murder. This is what he said to them in Acts 3.19. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. To the very people who said, crucify Him, he's saying your sins can be wiped away. Those who hated, rejected, and murdered Jesus can be forgiven. And so can you, friend. The only time that Jesus spoke of a sin not being forgiven was to a group of Pharisees in Matthew 12. And it was after they had witnessed irrefutable evidence that Jesus was working miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit And yet they claimed that he was possessed by the prince of demons, Beelzebub. They accused Jesus Christ, who was right there in front of them, of being demon-possessed. You're doing what you're doing because you're possessed by the devil. They had no excuse for such action. They weren't ignorant. They weren't misunderstanding anything here. They knew Jesus had proven Himself to be God's Messiah, sent to save Israel, and yet they deliberately chose to deny the truth and slander the Holy Spirit. So this was defiance. This was not just blindness. This was willful blindness. Because He was right there. He had done everything right in front of them. And so this is what Jesus said to them. In Matthew 12, verse 31, he said, Any sin and blasphemy, any sin and blasphemy 
shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, let's just put a little reality behind these words for us here today, listening over 2,000 years later. Can anyone truly repeat the scenario that Christ is, that, that you're looking at Christ performing miracles and then claiming the Holy Spirit through whom these miracles are being done through Jesus is actually Beelzebub, the prince of demons? No, none of us can repeat this scenario. So what is this sin that will not be pardoned then? I would just put it this way. It's continued unbelief. There is no pardon for a person who dies in rejection of Christ. If the Holy Spirit convicts a person of sin and righteousness and judgment and that salvation is possible through faith in Christ and still a person remains unrepentant, then that person is choosing hell over heaven. There is no forgiveness for someone who dies without faith in Christ. To reject God's only Savior is to be left with no means of salvation. To reject the only pardon possible is an unpardonable sin. Now, Satan would like nothing more for you but to think that that's, I'm talking about you. <laughs> but see, even though you may have rejected Christ up to this point in your life, it's still pardonable. It's still pardonable. You can repent today. Today is the day of salvation. God will receive you to Himself and He'll receive you right now. You know, did you see that trend, I don't know, so many years ago on YouTube where people would get into the camera and go, I deny the Holy Spirit. And another person, I deny the Holy Spirit. It's just a video of people saying, I deny the Holy Spirit over and over and over and over. Like, see, I'm committing the unpardonable sin. No big deal. Every one of those people who denied the Holy Spirit can repent of this sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ and be forgiven. That's how ludicrous people can be at times. How do we know this? Look at Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews is all about how Christ is better. Christ is better. Christ is better. You name it, Christ is better. And he says in verse 23, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, who's better, Jesus, who's better, because He continues forever, He holds His priesthood permanently. Therefore, He is able also to say forever, those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And that word there forever can be translated completely. He is able to save completely. And that is what Paul is saying here about Christ, about his reconciliation back in Colossians. He says, he can completely reconcile you 
only reason you're still separate from God is because you haven't repented of your sin. It's the only reason. You could repent right now and put your faith in Jesus Christ and He would wrap His arms around you and call you His own. His Spirit would reside in you forever as a pledge. You're mine. You're mine forever. I'm coming back for you. I'm preparing a place for you and I'm coming back for you. Oh, you were one of those fools on the video who said, I deny the Holy Spirit? I say forever those who repent and put their faith in Think about it. What have your sins gained you? What have your sins gained you? Your sins have not only failed to give you the satisfaction that they promised they would, they've ruined your life in so many ways. Think of the relationships that either are damaged or destroyed because of your sin. Think of how your body has suffered because of the choices, the sinful choices that you've made. Think of the places that you had to go to or move from because of your sin. Think of the jobs you had to leave because of your sin. And on and on the list goes. If I don't cover your situation, but you know sin has ruined some aspect of your life, then stop giving it credit for being something good for you. Your sins haven't done anything good for you. And the truth is is that you were lied to. Christ is the truth. And he is telling you the truth about himself and his ability to cleanse you from the stain and the guilt of your sins and fully reconcile you to God. He wants to call you blessed. That you didn't see him with your own eyes, but yet you believe that he is Lord and God. And if you will put your faith in him today, you'll turn from your sins... And put your faith in Him today. He says you will be blessed. I call you blessed. Peter's sermon. Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. In order that times of refreshing, refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. If this is what you desire, you're in the right place. And when we return next week, we're going to talk about just how this supremely sufficient one has been able to reconcile all things to himself. And that includes you. Let's pray. Our glorious Father, from you came forth a son. You sent him on a rescue mission for those who were lost those who were dead in their sins and had no ability to save themselves. He didn't wait for us to get our acts straight. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. What love. What glorious, glorious love. Betrayed for us in the form of a cross. But it's not the cross. It's who was on that cross the Supreme One who is sufficient to save sinners. And we rejoice that we have been called blessed by You because You've allowed us to see and to believe. And we praise Your name. Amen.